Turning your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And once you get there, please turn uh, in the back of the hymnal to the Heidelberg Catechism. We have been going through the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the teaching of the Bible. The Catechism, of course, is like a road map uh, to the Bible. If you wanted to get from here to California, uh, you wouldn't embark with no assistance or help. Uh, rather, you would take out your trusty GPS or your road, uh, Rand McNally Road Atlas, and you would find what's the best way uh, to get to California, and you would be very thankful that somebody had done that before you. So also, if you want to find what's in the Bible, uh, you don't have to begin at Genesis 1 and read through to the end of Revelation in order to uh, discover it, although I certainly would not discourage you from doing that. That's a good practice to engage in. Many of us... Many of us attempt to read the 66 books of the Bible each year, and I would encourage us all uh, to do that. But we can be thankful that, like with maps, somebody has gone before us and summarized in succinct fashion the teachings of the Bible. And they've done that in the Heidelberg Catechism, for example. This document is something that is uh, tried and proven true over the course of hundreds of years and is beloved amongst confessional documents, that is, documents about what we confess the Bible teaches, um, because of its personal, its pastoral, and its practical dimensions. And I trust that if you've been here during the course of these sermons, you have come to appreciate that as well. We're up to the third section of the Catechism, which is how we are to respond to God's grace given to us uh, in Jesus Christ with gratitude. And the Catechism has taught us that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. And we're going through the Lord's Prayer. And I just remind you that if you stall or if you've come to a dry spell in your spiritual life and you don't know what to pray or how to pray, many of us have found ourselves in such a position, uh, you can use the Catechism as a devotional help. The answers to the questions are themselves prayers. So you can pray through the Lord's Prayer the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer, the preface and the conclusion, simply by reading the answers to the questions that are found here. We're up to the fifth petition today, though, and that is um, forgive us our debts. So I will read the question. It's question 51 on the right-hand side of the page, the right-hand column, and ask you to respond with the answer in the text. What does the fifth petition mean? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means... Do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. And then turning to Matthew chapter 6, you'll find there, uh, let's read from verse 7 through verse 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For 
If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It was Alexander Pope who coined the aphorism, to err is human and to forgive is divine. I do not know if he was a Christian, but he certainly grasped the essence of Jesus' lesson for us here in the fifth petition. Forgiveness is a divine prerogative. God is the one who has been offended by sin, your sin and my sin. And he alone can forgive sins committed against him. Therefore, Jesus teaches us to pray to God for this forgiveness. So, three points to the sermon this morning, and we'll actually segue uh, in elaborating on this into the 1130 service as well. First of all, the request for divine forgiveness, the actual petition. Secondly, the remedy of divine forgiveness. And thirdly, the result of divine forgiveness. So the request, the remedy, and the result. Last week, as we looked at the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray to God for our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Here, he teaches you to pray for your spiritual needs, all right? And the reason is clear. Without forgiveness, having all your physical needs met will benefit nothing. As Jesus says elsewhere, what if, uh, what if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? Has he profited anything? Obviously not, right? Man's deepest need is forgiveness. And very important for you to remember, particularly as you talk to others about the faith. People's greatest, deepest need is forgiveness. And I'll elaborate that on a moment, all right? <clears throat> We need to recognize that the social gospel, liberation theology, uh, and much evangelical emphasis on word, uh, on deed ministry or felt needs, um, uh, is hopeless, uh, ultimately without meeting people's spiritual needs. All right. So, uh, unless a man on death row is pardoned, it does no good if he's well fed and fully clothed. So. Forgiveness is man's deepest need. I said I would elaborate on this and allow me to see even in secular circles, they recognize that this is the deepest need of human beings. Uh, the psychiatrist William Sadler has said that a clear conscience is the great first step towards overcoming neuroticism. Very interesting. <clears throat> uh, Excuse me. Uh, one head of a British mental hospital said he could dismiss one half of his patients if they could be convinced they were forgiven. Interesting. Carl Menninger, the dean of American psychotherapists, wrote a book. Uh, this is a secular Jewish man, psychiatrist, wrote a book, Whatever Happened to Sin? Very interesting that a secular psychiatrist would write a book entitled Whatever Happened uh, to Sin? Uh, in it, he contends that many persons are wrongly labeled sick or criminal, whereas if they were treated as sinners, they would be capable of being forgiven and thus healed of various disorders. Even in secular circles, people recognize that forgiveness is man's deepest need. 
all of these, you see, testify to the fact that to err is human. And the plea for recognizing that to forgive is divine. Unfortunately, it's a shame that some sincere but misguided Christian psychologists don't recognize this. We are taught, for example, today, uh, advice that we ought to forgive God. All right? Here, Pope's aphorism is turned around. To err is divine, but to forgive is human. It makes nonsense out of Jesus' petitions, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lewis Smeads, a well-known reformed author from California, says, for example, would it bother God too much if uh, we found our peace by forgiving him for the wrongs we suffer? I think, he goes on, I think we may need to forgive God after all now and then, but not often, not for his sake, but for ours. Now, I hope that falls on your ears as blasphemy, as blasphemy, all right? At best, it's absurd. God never does wrong, and he doesn't need to be forgiven. We do. That's the point of Jesus teaching us to pray. Forgive us our debts, right? Secondly, very popular, and I hear this over and over uh, uh, throughout many years, uh, People are taught to forgive themselves. We have to forgive ourselves, all right? Here, to err is human, and to forgive is human. Here, Jesus' petition, forgive us our debts, is turned around like a boomerang, and we pray to ourselves to forgive ourselves. Give you some examples. Uh, Tap Scott. Uh, begins a six-page discussion of this subject by saying this, quote, It is so imperative that we accept God's forgiveness and forgive ourselves. Not forgiving ourselves is actually a form of rebellion. Do you suppose we are sinning when we do not forgive ourselves? This very act separates us from God. God's word says we must forgive. That means even ourselves. Two popular radio psychologists and Christian broadcast stations uh, teach Quote, we need to forgive ourselves. Just as we get angry with other people, we become angry with ourselves. However unloved and worthless we once felt, and however much self-hate and condemnation we once nursed, we must now see that by loving us enough to redeem us, God gave us value, and by forgiving us completely, he obligated us to forgive ourselves and made it sin for us not to. Lewis Meads, again, extols self-forgiveness and says, to forgive yourself takes high courage. To forgive your own self is almost the ultimate miracle of healing. Now, maybe you've heard this, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you believe it, all right? However, it's nowhere commanded in the Bible to forgive yourself. Only the one that has been offended is obligated or is possible to forgive. And in the Bible, the object of offense or sin is God. God is the one who has been offended. He must forgive. So what do we do with people who say they have had, uh, they have a hard time forgiving themselves? 
People say this, we ought to be sensitive to the fact that something's going on there, not just callous and brutishly dismiss what they have to say, but what's going on there, all right? Well, the problem is not self-forgiveness, all right? The problem is not self-forgiveness. They express that they want to bury it once and for all. What the problem is, is the lack of ability to do so is not the problem, but that they recognize something more needs to be done. Forgiveness is just the beginning. Being forgiven by God clears away the guilt of any sin, all right? But what people say is, when they say that, is they recognize that they have not changed. And if they have not changed, then even if they're forgiven what was done previously, that can be done again, all right? They're crying out for change that will assure them that they'll never do anything like it again. But here again, God can change people, right? And therefore, to forgive is divine. One which I heard from from a very dear, long-term Christian friend of mine, her husband, will not pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, you may have encountered Christians who won't pray the Lord's Prayer for a variety of reasons, but this gentleman won't pray the Lord's Prayer because he says, I've already been forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. And if I've been forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future, then I shouldn't pray for God to forgive us our debts because that would contradict the fact that I have been justified once for all. Seems to make sense, right? Hasn't God already forgiven us? Then why is Jesus teaching us to pray? Forgive us our debts. Maybe you think that's a reasonable assertion, all right? A reasonable question. Well, the Bible distinguishes, when it talks about God, it distinguishes between God as judge and God as father. All right, J.I. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God, in the chapter on adoption. I would encourage everybody to read that. I think it's one of the most powerful chapters I've ever read in my Christian life, and it's certainly one of the most powerful in terms of my pastoral ministry in uh, promoting the idea to people that they are adopted children of God uh, in Jesus Christ, adopting them. Enough for that, though, all right? <clears throat> the Bible distinguishes between God as judge, right? God is judge declares that all our sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood, pays the penalty, the wages of sin is death. Christ dies for all those sins, past, present, and future. They are removed as far from us as the east is from the west. Uh, They are thrown into the depths of the sea, and God puts up a sign, no fishing allowed, right? He forgives them, and he has forgotten them. He holds them against us no more. But he does that as judge. But as father, and if you can think of this in a domestic relationship, all right, as father, when we sin now, even after we have been fully justified, declared right by God, and forgiven, we lose that intimacy of a father's love. We, use the, we lose that closeness of a father's embrace, a father's affection. 
and sin still separates us from God, not in the sense of an eternal punishment, but in the sense of relationship. And as I said, if you can think of that in a domestic relationship, every good father would say to his children, I love you and I will always love you and nothing you do or say will be able to separate you from my love. But when you disregard and disobey me, it breaks my heart. It makes me sad. And so also, likewise, with God our Father. All right? And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray first, our Father who art in heaven. And as our Father... Our sins disappoint God. Our sins break his heart. Our sins disappoint him. And so Jesus goes on to teach, start by praying, our Father. Recognize who you are as a child of God if you are covered by the blood of Christ, right? But now deal with your present sins, which have robbed you of the intimacy of that relationship. And of course, just to let you into the study of pastoral counseling, this is a lot of pastoral counseling, is that people's difficulty when they come and deal with difficulties in their spiritual lives, various things, it's because of sins that have robbed them of that awareness, that intimacy of a warm, tender, loving relationship with God as Father. And often the solution is simple, not simplistic, but as simple as bringing people around to this point and saying, Our Father, forgive us our debts. All right? That restores that relationship. It restores that intimacy. The smile of God's countenance and the warmth of his embrace is renewed, refreshed, restored. Jesus is simply teaching us a simple plea for God to cleanse us as we acknowledge that to forgive is divine. Now you can be sure that you're forgiven because of the remedy that God has provided for divine forgiveness, all right? Jesus teaches here we're to pray, forgive us our debts, and you must acknowledge your need of a remedy. You must acknowledge your need of a remedy. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. Jesus came not for the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. Is that you? As you sit here, or if you're in in my hearing today, is is that you? Does that describe you? Is is that something that you own uh, for yourself? You see, you must, because otherwise there is no remedy for your sin apart from that. The great danger is some vague sense of sinfulness and a shallow view of sin. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm no worse than the guy next door. Um, I think my good outweighs my bad. We'll deal with that more at 1130. That's a shallow view of sin, right? It's a very vague sense or awareness of your sinfulness. Jesus teaches us how to view our sins, your sin and my sin, as debts. Very interesting. As debts. And why is that? Sin is a failure to pay God what we owe him. What did God require of Adam and Eve in the garden? He required perfect obedience. 
the day that you sin, you shall surely die. He required perfect obedience and a penalty for disobedience. Two things right at the outset. Genesis chapter 2 governs the whole of the rest of the Bible. All the other 65 books, right? All the other chapters in the Bible are governed by that one thing. The failure to do what God requires or doing what God forbids is sin, all right? And it's a failure to give God what we owe him, perfect obedience. So Jesus can talk about sin with the euphemism or with the other term of debts. Forgive us our debts. He sees sin as debts, right? And the wages of sin is death. The day that you sin, you shall surely die. The mark of true Christian spirituality is an increased awareness of your sinfulness. It's very interesting as somebody that's been a Christian going on 40 years, all right? When you talk to somebody that's been a Christian a while, it's, it, it, it's always rooted in this awareness of one's sinfulness. Of course, as I've already stated, in order to be forgiven, you must acknowledge your need for a remedy, right? So you become aware of your sinfulness. You become aware of your need for a Savior, right? And in that respect, when Jesus provides, uh, excuse me, when God provides a Savior in Jesus Christ, we're very thankful for the cross by which Jesus Christ, uh, uh, God in Christ has forgiven us our sins and removed them away far from us. But as you go on in the Christian life, you're not only aware of how holy God is. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you say, as a result of reading the Bible, praying, drawing close to God, I never really fully understood just how holy God is. God gets holier and holier and holier. And at the same time, you become more and more aware of your sinfulness. So that the gap, which was there at the outset, I'm a sinner, God is holy, Christ restores that relationship as you go on in your spiritual life, the gap becomes a chasm. God is holier than I ever could imagine, and my sin is more sinful than I could ever imagine. But you see, in that scenario, the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as well. The length, the depth to which Christ actually went to forgive my sin and restore that relationship. And correspondingly, I hope, your gratitude, your thankfulness, your love to this thrice holy God who saves sinners is increased and grows and becomes huge as well. The remedy of divine forgiveness Unless full compensation be made to God, we're undone. We're for under, forever under the righteous judgment of God. <clears throat> and you and I, in and of ourselves, are hopeless and helpless, powerless to pay that debt. Morally and spiritually, we're bankrupt. The payment must come from outside ourselves. And it comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what our short catechism lesson today teaches us? Because of Christ's blood, we pray. 
do not impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgiveness is truly divine and you can be sure. God treats believing sinners as if they have perfectly obeyed as Jesus obeyed. This is the one debt incurred which fills the soul with new and keener shame that God's unspeakable gift has been abused by us. God gave his son to free us from sin. Christ emptied himself of all but love in order to pay the penalty for sin. The Holy Spirit has been poured out to purify us from sin. And so we should not keep on sinning. Which brings us to the third point, and that is the result of divine forgiveness. Catechism says, forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Those who are forgiven are forgiving. It's an evidence of God's grace in you. The proof that you're forgiven is that you forgive others. Thomas Manton, an old Puritan preacher, said, there is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves, that know how gently God has dealt with them. More on this at 11.30 as we look at being forgiven and moving to forgiving. We'll look at Matthew chapter 18 in that regard. For now, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do come before you and give you thanks and praise that you are our Father in Heaven. That Jesus Christ has become our elder brother. That he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And that in the greatness of your love, that love which has been lavished on us by the Holy Spirit himself shed abroad in our hearts. We come to see ourselves not only covered by the blood of Christ, but adopted as your dearly loved children and as members of the family of the living God. Help us to know this and to live it out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.